Another pot of coffee is brewing because the podcast name may have changed, but my need for caffeine probably never will. I am only drinking my first cup of the day, but it's still very early to be fair, so that's not unreasonable. I am currently being a little bit petty as I listen to podcasts in the background a little louder than I need to in order to get back at my upstairs neighbours for hoovering at 6.50 on the first morning of my holiday. As I said, a bit petty, but it set the pattern for the rest of the break and my plans for additional sleep never came to fruition, though it was a good and productive 10 days. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on your preference and when you're listening, of course, and let's get started. I'm always really nervous when I get sent a book and ask to review it, especially when it's by a new author. It's their first published work and I really don't know if I'm going to like it. That being said, even if the book had been by my favourite author on earth, which honestly changes week by week, it's never possible to be 100% certain that I'm going to like what I'm reading. Everyone has an off day. When I was first emailed about this book and a few others, I really wasn't sure. I did a a few bits of research, read a few of the reviews already out there and had a feeling of dread not for any specific reason. What if I didn't like it? What if it was really not my sort of book? What if it was a vanity project? And believe me, I've read a fair few of those. The book in question is the first novel by William Keeling, Bell Nash and the Bath Souffle. This book is being promoted as the first in a series called The Gay Street Chronicles, And as you will discover as I continue, it is a series title with two meanings. Gaia Champion's souffle fails to rise in 1830s Bath, it sets off a chain of events that overthrows the settled order. Centred on the personality of local councillor and bachelor extraordinaire Bellerophon Bell Nash, the first volume of the Gay Street Chronicles engages with social issues that were emerging in the early days of Queen Victoria's reign and still require our close attention today. A recurring cast of whimsical characters brings a gentle humour to the writing and to the strong feminist activism of Bath's First Lady Magistrate. This book is a clever commentary on the situation for women and homosexuals in a time when their rights were minimised. Women weren't allowed to vote, they were considered less than men and believed to have less intellect. Meanwhile, if you were caught committing any act of homosexuality, you could be hanged. More than a little bit extreme, if you ask me. When I first read the title of the book, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. However, it threw me a fair few curveballs. Bellerophon, now to be referred to as Bell because seriously his full name is a bit of a mouthful, is a respected councillor in the city of Bath. I have to admit that despite being an avid fan of Jane Austen, I have never visited, but it is a place I would like to go. 
He takes pride in his city and wants to make sure that it is treated with respect. He knows that there are limits to his powers, but he does everything he can to ensure that everything is maintained to the highest standards. Anyway, the book starts with a celebration of Belle's birthday at the home of his good friend and relatively recently widowed Gaia Champion. Her beloved husband, Hercules, a lawyer, died suddenly a year previously, and though she knows she is defying convention by walking out in something other than her widow's weeds, she knows that her husband wouldn't want her to suspend living. The evening is expected to be wonderful. Belle is going to enjoy the companionship of his second cousin once removed, Gerhard Kant, nephew of philosopher Emmanuel, as well as society maven Lady Passmore, her friend, Mrs Pomeroy, and the timid Miss Phyllis Prim. It's also expected that they will have the most divine food, courtesy of Gaia's French-trained cook, Madame Galette. Unfortunately, one cannot anticipate how a souffle is going to turn out. They are unpredictable, of course. The guests at this dinner party are set for disappointment when not only do the souffles not rise, but the cake that Madame Galette has carefully created is a disaster. This disaster sets in motion the events that lead to an unexpected death, kidnapping and a very clever trick that makes enemies of powerful people and impresses others. There are several smaller plots entangled within the main and though they have their own conclusions, each element ties into the central plot neatly, contributing to the end that no one, especially me, expects. Of course, as I am a spoiler-free book review, and I always will be, I'm not going to talk about the conclusion, merely moments that lead up to it. I don't want to do anything that would make you think, I don't need to read this now because this book was most certainly unexpected. As I have already said, Belle is incredibly loyal to Bath. He is also a very loyal and tolerant friend. He wants only the best for the people around him, and everything he does contributes to that. I've also said this all starts with a deflated souffle, but what seems simple and without any intrigue quickly becomes far more complex and vindictive than you would expect. The cause of this unsuccessful meal can be dropped at the feet of one Hezekiah Porter, a shopkeep who is as corrupt as the day is long. He is selling the women of the town, as they are the ones who purchase his wares, flour that is contaminated with cattle feed. There are those who are aware, such as the unseemly and distasteful Mrs Shirley Hatet, what a name, proprietress of a tea room where they serve what sound like the most unappetising treats. He is in collusion with people in power in the city, including the distasteful but powerful magistrate Obadiah Wood, the unlikable councillor Mr Jacob Pollard, and an obsequious toad, Special Constable Decimus Dim. All of these men use their position to manipulate things that they dislike, especially any woman they feel is trying to improve her station, or any man who shows a liking for things that they themselves feel are less than masculine. Multiple times through the book, these three men prove that they are misogynistic, bigoted, and just generally horrific human beings. However, they're somewhat clever in their behaviours, only doing it when they are sure that they won't be witnessed by people they consider their equals. 
As soon as it's discovered that Mr Porter's produce is the cause of the failed food at an otherwise pleasant dinner party to celebrate Belle's 35th birthday, the group set a plan in action. They are determined that whatever happens, they are going to drum this corrupt businessman who so clearly has no respect for his customers out of town. However, the plan is, as always is the case, not without its issues. These issues come in the form of the men already mentioned. He is protected from accusation and prosecution by them. They are exactly like him and care little for anything but their powerful position. Gaia, Bell, and their friends all do their utmost to ensure that Porter's poor business practices are not only uncovered, but that he is held accountable for selling contaminated foodstuffs. But things don't go to plan. Porter has sensed that he is under the watchful eye of people who will not put up with his behaviour. And in a move that is definitely more on the side of villain than hero, we see two of the investigators accused of a heinous crime. The ever-righteous Lady Passmore and her loyal companion Mrs Pomfrey are arrested by the special constable who definitely lives up to his name, Decimus Dim, and imprisoned while awaiting trial for prostitution. It's a setup. We all know it's a setup, but this is the act of a desperate group of men who feel that they are in the right, being accused as they are of crimes that they have definitely committed. The only way they can assure they are not caught is to weaken their enemy. Of course, no cosy crime is one without a death. Though whether you can say that Obadiah Wood, who just for a moment I keep on wanting to refer to as Obadiah Stain because my mind immediately goes to Tony Stark's advisor in Iron Man, and his death by rancid butter on a crumpet made with contaminated flour that he approved sale of is murder, is to be determined. Personally, I would say that he was most certainly hoist by his own petard. From this moment onwards, without the powerful magistrate in their corner, things spiral out of control for the unlikable villains of the piece. There is a visit from young Princess Victoria, as this book takes place six years before she takes the throne as queen. There is a kidnapping, an arrest, a trial, a new hiring and a scandal. But to reveal all of those would be to reveal the book in its entirety, and you really don't want me to do that. Needless to say, this book is one that is part social commentary, part comedic farce and part historical account. All of these combined make for a bit of a romp. There are a few things which struck me the moment I started the book. One is the style of writing. It's as though William Keeling has managed to combine the wit and wisdom of Austen, whom I love with a passion, and the slightly darker, more depressing, yet still satirical aspects of the time that I would more closely associate with Charles Dickens. Together, this makes for some very clever and entertaining storytelling. Belle, Gaia, Gerhard and even Lucius Lush could be straight out of one of Austen's scenes at a society party, one where we have the elegant but insulting Mr Darcy talking with the witty Miss Elizabeth Bennet, observing the actions of those around them with a few subtle digs about pomp and ceremony while characters who fit their names so appropriately, such as Miss Phyllis Prim, Mrs Shirley Hate It, Mrs Crust and Mr Decimus Dim, could have easily walked off the pages of a book like Martin Chuzzlewit. 
Another thing that struck me about the names of our central characters was their strong ties to mythology. Bellerophon was the son of Poseidon, a Corinthian hero who battled and killed the Chimera, a fire-breathing hybrid lion, goat and snake. Yeah, not something I'd like to meet on a dark night in an alley either. He was also gifted with the winged Pegasus, a creature he was able to tame. In some ways, the bell from this book is like his namesake, the son of a famed and well-loved counsellor of Bath, well known for being kind-hearted. Bell also wants to make his mark and live up to his father Bo's powerful reputation. Gaia is another name that takes a lot to live up to. She is the personification of the earth, a primordial deity from whence all titans, and then the Olympian's house was said to be descended. Though clearly Gaia Champion is not the Earth Mother of old, she is the first of her kind. She is set apart by her intellect, her leadership, her determination, and she is not one to be trifled with, something that the men of Bath will soon come to realise. She is also set uncomfortable and unpleasant tasks that she has no choice but to action, but she proves herself willing to carry them out because she knows that she has bigger battles to win. And quite clearly, her surname is another sign of her purpose in the novel. She is a champion. As I have already mentioned, there are multiple smaller plots set in amongst the core, and one of these is the tale of Gerhardt and Lucius. Now, Lucius is the great-grandson of the chairman of the council, a kindly and somewhat oblivious old man who puts his trust in those elected officials to do their jobs. As an assistant to Bell, Lucius carries out multiple tasks – one of which is to distract young Gerhardt and keep him busy while Bell is tending his own tasks at the council. Of course, this ends up being distraction that causes considerable trouble, but the fun that is had by both young men is explained as innocent and joyous, and sometimes rather odd. There is an incident involving a music teacher, an imaginary baby's crib, and some unusual attempts at baby talk that I will leave you to discover for yourself. I will say that Gerhardt is rather comedic. He is over the top in his style of dress, his mannerisms, and even his way of speaking, merging French, German, and English to make single sentences. But this all just combines to make him rather endearing, and most def definitely the comic relief element of the book. As I am currently talking about the characters, it's important to mention that they live the life they want. None of them are unaware of the consequences because of the life they are living and the time they are living in. But you can't choose who you love or how you love, and they are honest about it. They are kind, caring, and concerned characters, and that is the core of who they are. Unfortunately, because of the time that they are living in, those who wish to manipulate the system have more tools at their disposal to use and no hesitation in doing so when it becomes clear that their livelihood is at risk should their serious misdeeds be discovered. I've already briefly touched upon the punishment that could be meted out by a court of law if any men were caught together in flagranti and the last time men were executed for acts of homosexuality in the UK was in London in 1835 four years after this book was based. That such corrupt officials in this book held the threat of death over Bell's head for doing his job is deplorable and made Porter, Wood, Pollard and Dim worse villains to my mind. Another thing that was different 
and kept me entertained throughout was the brief historical notes that appeared at the end of each creatively titled chapter. Information about real characters of note, mention of Greek mythology, though I did notice one error when the author referred to Ovid, Roman writer, as having been turned into Hermaphroditus, when in Greek mythology, Hermaphroditus was actually the son of Hermes and Aphrodite. That being said, personally, I only know this because I'm a bit of a mythology nerd and I studied it for several years at college. There are footnotes about people like Mary Wollstonecraft, the horrific tale of what happened to some poor cats at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth I, and an Indian philosophy text from the early second millennium, meaning up to a thousand years ago, called the Vedas. This is something rarely seen in fiction novels, and it's a creative way to impart information without it feeling shoehorned in without purpose, at least in my view. This book is brand new, having been published on the 3rd of March 2022. I was sent a copy by the publisher in exchange for an honest and unbiased review, which is, as you know, what you will always get from me on being bookish. I am going to try and find a selection of further reviews so you have more than just my opinion to rely on before you order yourself a copy. On Goodreads, it has so far earned 4.14 stars, and on Amazon, it has been given four five-star reviews. In their review, Gay Books for the Soul, Charlotte gave the book three stars with the view. First and foremost, this is a book that's a whole lot of fun. It toes a line between outright absurdity and humour and seriousness very well. I had a great time reading this one, which really is the least I ask for in any book. I read most of this book in a single sitting. That's how much fun I have with it. It's definitely a thoroughly researched book, and the background author's notes attest to that. It's the kind of book that the research brings to life that you can feel as though you're right there alongside the characters. You don't even need to have been to Bath to feel as though you've walked its streets before when you read this one. Frankly, that's the best part of the book, the part that elevates it from being fun and diverting to really good. It would be remiss of me not to mention the characters, as varied and vibrant as they are. This is a book where the entirety of the cast leaps off the page, no matter whose point of view it is. You won't want to put the book down, and really, that's down to the characters and how real they feel. Susan gave the book four stars in her review and said, An exploration into life and society 200 years ago in Bath, with all its idiosyncrasies and charms, as well as discrimination and corruption. We are led into a world of pomp and circumstance, privilege and eccentricity of the age, some of which we can still associate with today. I particularly enjoyed the descriptions of the lavish dinner parties and the characters who attended, and not least the part where the souffle failed to rise to the occasion, thus resulting in Bath society being investigated and redefined. A serious but page-turning read with a quite surprising finale. As the book has only been out for a few weeks, reviews were not as thick on the ground as they would be if the book had been around for months or even years. I am sure that this will change in time, but hopefully this has given you a little more insight into the thoughts of other readers. Now that I have established their feelings, I will expound on mine just a little bit. Did I like the book? 
I feel as though the book was written for people just like me. I love Austen, I love the Regency period, and I love things with an element of historical accuracy. And here, I can't help but remember how many times I groaned in dismay when reading Bridgerton and the latest from Sarah McLean, the review link I will post below. And I love myself a bit of mystery. When I was emailed and asked, would you be interested in this? I took a look at the website, read the blurb and immediately responded with yes, because it just ticked so many boxes for me. And then I opened the book and read the dedication. Hello, 1980s teenager calling here. Present me with a dedication quoting one of my favourite songs from Frankie Goes to Hollywood and I'm there for it all the way. I can honestly say that there isn't a character in this book that I felt nothing for. Whether that emotion was dislike, indifference, admiration, or they'd be the best person at a party, I felt something. Sure, at the beginning, the mystery felt as though it would be a five-second wonder, much like the murder in There Goes the Bride, but I was admittedly pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be full of twists and turns that took me to a very unexpected and somewhat heartbreaking conclusion. For that, I can only say that I am very grateful to the author. I really like surprises in my endings. Though this has no bearing on my reading of the book, I do have to add here that I loved the cover and the way that the book was so easy to hold. Yeah, I know, books are always easy to hold, but some are admittedly better than others. Just ask any reader in your family or in your friend group and they will tell you the same. The cover looks like the front page of a newspaper and the book itself is bound really well. Not a single crease in the spine, despite having been cracked open multiple times. And I honestly don't think any pages will be falling out of it anytime soon. And I've got a few books that that's happened to. Will I read more by William Keeling? At present, this is Keeling's only novel, though I am reassured that there are more to come in the Gay Street Chronicles. The next book is to be titled Bell Nash and the Circus Royale, but no release date has been announced as yet. I will be keeping an eye out as I would love to find out what happens next. This was an enjoyable Regency romp. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. Given that this is a cosy mystery of sorts, my initial instinct would be to say go for the classics, meaning authors like Agatha Christie and perhaps even Arthur Conan Doyle. However, for me, when it comes to this particular book, I think that it's more about the writing style than it is the genre. As this is very satirical and not so subtle dig at society and societal expectations, I'm going to veer on the side of things and say that if you enjoyed this, then take a trip down the classics aisle in your local library. Pick up something by Charles Dickens, like maybe Martin Chuzzlewit or the Pickwick Papers, or perhaps something by Jane Austen, maybe Pride and Prejudice, Northanger Abbey or Mansfield Park. Though I have been off work this week and had every intention of sitting down and reading loads, life stepped in and said, how about you live in the real world for once? So I did. This week I finished two books, dug up a tree, planted some flowers, visited my mum, listened to a ton of podcasts, got rid of six months worth of Amazon boxes 
and have my hair done. I also went out and smelled fresh air, spent too long on a bus, did a mini book haul at a local charity shop and finally made my home office habitable again after months. Not bad, really. Oh, and I also got sunburn when I sat out in the shade for five hours on Easter Sunday. My reading count for the month is still not very impressive, or at least for April, but I am ahead of where I thought I would be this year and where I had planned to be, to be honest, which is an accomplishment in itself. My week off work vanished in the blink of an eye, but I am happy with what I managed to do. And that, at the end of it all, is what counts. Despite always having a rather large TBR, I am always looking for books to add to it. So if you have any fiction recommendations you would love to hear me talk about, or just think I'd like to read it, send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com. It still hasn't changed. Or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to take a look. Please DM me because notifications are so busy all the time that I very rarely see them. And that sounds really bad, but it's honest. DM me if you've got a book you'd like me to read. We're in May. I'm not sure how it happened, but the fifth month has arrived and we're getting ever closer to the summer. This means that we should be seeing a few more beach reads on the release calendar. That said though, what is a beach read? I personally just pick up whatever is calling to me from my TBR or from my I've already read this about 10,000 times but come on read me again. It could easily be something science fiction, fantasy, romance or maybe another cosy crime, who knows? What's on your beach read list for the year? Is it always something expected? All of that having been said, here are just a few of the books that are coming out on the 5th of May. If you love books about flying ships, fantasy worlds of the future that mix the beauty of Japanese culture with adventure, then Rebel Skies by Anne Seilin is just what you could be asking for. A YA novel about a girl with special powers embarking on an exciting journey. If you're looking for a memoir with a dark story at the heart of it, revealing the not-so-bright niceties that you expect, then A Waiter in Paris by Edwin Chisholm could be your perfect next read. The Assembly by Natasha Brown is a coming-of-age novel set against the backdrop of a credit crunch, hostilities, racism and personal expectations. Are Jennifer and Nick meant to be together? Their hearts think so, but their timing is never right. London has a population of nine million people and fate just seems to be keeping these two apart. London with Love is the latest from author Sarah Manning. Last week, it seems, was a very big week when it comes to new books coming out. And it looks as though in the run-up to summer, this isn't going to change. With everything from romance to crime, memoirs, to new Mr. Men books flying into bookstores and libraries near you. If you'd like to find out more about books coming out or just want to read more spoiler-free reviews, join other bibliophiles and sign up to my newsletter by visiting my website. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? As I am recording this a week ahead and I have just finished a very busy but still quite restful week off, I am actually feeling very well. 
Have there been moments when I would like to just hide under the blankets and stay there? Yes, but that's every week, especially when you suffer from recurrent depression. That I don't is a testament to two things. My medication, which hasn't steered me wrong in 18 years and touch wood won't do. And the recognition that if I don't do what has to be done, whether that's getting up and taking the rubbish out to the dustbin or making dinner, then it won't get done. Am I saying that people with partners or those that live with their family and have depression have it easier? No, definitely not. We all have our demons, the little battles we have to fight and win on a daily basis, but we also all have coping mechanisms. Whether it's just me telling myself to get out of bed and get on with stuff, or Joe blogs down the street having a shower and shaving as he hums to some song on the radio, you do whatever you have to in order to face the day. I feel bad that this is my word of wisdom for the week, but I am feeling so calm right now. Did I get the extra sleep I wanted? Nope. My neighbour seemed happy to ensure that didn't happen by getting up early every day and stomping around in the room directly above my own. Did I get everything done I wanted to? No, not at all. I wanted to read more. I wanted to get more content created for you. Did I read more books? No. So what did I do? I did what I needed to. I tidied, I spent time with people, I lived. Sometimes I have to be honest, I didn't even realise what I needed until I did it. But I feel good, I feel calm. Is some of that medication? No doubt. Am I going to question it? Nope. So there it is. My thought for this week, do what you need to do. Within the law and without hurting anyone else physically, to feel good about the person you are. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. And if you're feeling generous, head over to show some support for Livestream for the Cure. This year is their sixth and for 45 hours from the 19th to the 21st of May, it's all live with some of your favourite podcasters, including me, taking part to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute. I'll post a link below. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee and to pick up a new book. I'm going to enjoy the entirety of Sunday reading. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>